All right. Before we jump in, and I still haven't fixed this pulpit, uh, before we jump in, would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Dear Lord, as we dive into your word today, and as we explore this section of David's story, may you open our hearts and our minds and our souls, and may your Holy Spirit work. May he open up your word to us. May you affect us. May we be changed by our encounter with your word, and may your action change us. May we draw closer to you. May we believe in you, and may we glorify you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Our passage for today comes from 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 22. So I invite you to turn along with me, and we're going to start reading there. But we're not going to go very far to start. We'll just go with that first sentence. So, 1 Samuel chapter 22, starting in verse 1. We read this. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, that sentence in and of itself doesn't seem all significant. It's just telling about David. He went from where we previously left him, which was in the land of the Philistines, where he was in a state of desperation and, and, and trying to act like a madman so the, the Philistines wouldn't kill him. And so they sent him away. They, they cast him out of their nation. And so he departed, and he went from there to a cave at Adullam. Simple, easy, right? Well, there's a lot more to it. This, sent, this one sentence right here, um, in terms of physical circumstances, is the lowest point in David's life. He's completely alone. He's being hunted by the entire kingdom of Israel. He has no source of food or clothing, and he has nowhere to go. And so he goes to this cave, which is right on the border of, of Israel and, Philist, and, and the Philistine nation encampment, whatever they were, um, kind of as a bit of protection so Saul couldn't bring all of his armies out, but he can't go stay in the town there. He has to go stay in the cave. And now, according to Peter Lightheart, a pretty good commentator, in the Bible, caves are often associated with death because caves were used primarily as tombs for the people. And so for David to be driven and forced so far out of society, out of the nation, out of any communication or communion or contact with anybody that he would go live in a cave in a tomb like area would be similar to someone in our society having nowhere else that they could go but having to go and live in a cemetery david is barely in the land of the living and it's while he's here that he writes the Psalm 142. He writes it about this time. Whether he wrote it afterwards or, or while he was actually in here, we're not sure. But this is what he writes. 
He says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. David doesn't have anyone else to talk to. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No one, no refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Have you ever been in a time like that? Where it felt like no one cares for your soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. Where is God in the midst of suffering? David's crying out to him. He's in a cave. He's all alone. Where? Where is God? What is he doing? David had done nothing to deserve execution at the hands of Saul. But that's what he's facing. Throughout David's story to this point, he's been a faithful servant to Saul. He's served him time and time again. He's won great military victories on behalf of Saul and his ar- and the na- armies of Israel. He's been Saul's armor bearer. Somebody who was with him at all times. He's been... With Saul in times of, of, of madness, comforting him with music, bringing him back to sanity. Not once has David used his fame, though everyone in the nation of Israel was singing his praises. Not once did he use his status or his position of, of authority or power or whatnot to do anything against Saul or any other person for that matter in the nation. And yet Saul has persecuted him to the brink of death. Where is God? About a thousand years later, God himself came as a descendant of David and encountered and endured a similar and yet far greater period of suffering. Jesus came fully God and yet fully as a man. Like David to be a servant. Jesus says himself, I came not to be served, but to serve. He performed great miracles to show the world who he was. He taught so that we all could know God. Not once did he break any of the laws. And yet, and yet he suffered even more than David did. He was shunned. He was driven out. He was mocked. And in order to please a mob, he was stripped, beaten, whipped, and murdered. Jesus suffered not only the worst of what life on earth has to offer, but he also suffered the worst that God could do to him.
And I relate those things and I show how those stories are so parallel because when we ask this question, where is God in the midst of suffering? His answer to us is He's right alongside us. He has gone through it with us. And He does not leave us in it. And because of what Jesus did, because He has suffered in a greater way than any of us could ever imagine, David's able to write this last line in verse, in Psalm 142 and verse 7. This last line, he, he states, even though he's in a cave, even though he is totally alone, he is able to say this. He says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. When you think of the lowest point in your life, maybe you're at the lowest point in your life. Those are hard words to say. Jesus intimately knows the trials, the temptations, and the hardships that we experience. Our God did not stay in His throne room And watch us suffer. He came down to live with us. And as we cry out in anger and frustration and confusion and fear over the killings of black men in our country, He grieves with us. As we lament the complete disruption of life during a pandemic, He laments with us. And when we don't have the words to express that turmoil that's going on inside of us, when we're trying to figure out how we're feeling, and we don't have the words, we can't make a a, a sentence or a cry or words or put anything together, we can just look to God and, and think, help, He understands us. And so if He's right alongside us, it begs that question. It brings up that thing. If, if God is who He says He was, if He has come and He's walked alongside of us, if He's endured what we've endured, if He really knows what we're going through when we are in extreme times of suffering, why doesn't God do something about it? Going on in David's story, we read this, we say, And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. Somehow, even though David is completely isolated and trying uh, <laughs> trying not to be in contact with anyone lest they would rat him out to the king, somehow word gets to his family. And somehow, as word often seems to do, it spreads throughout the whole country. 
of David's position and his plight. And those who are in distress, those who are in debt, and those who are discontent, join him. Find him and join him. Which, let's be honest, this isn't exactly the group of people that you want to be around when you're in suffering. (laughs) Not exactly to be comforting or to cheer up your spirits. But thinking back to God's law, the law that he puts forth there in, in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and in Numbers, God's law specifically instructs Israel to care for those who are in distress, to relieve those of the burden of debt. And this clearly isn't going on in Saul's kingdom. Otherwise, you wouldn't have people so desperate that they're seeking out David, which also explains those who came because of their discontentedness, watching as Saul does not lead a nation to follow the laws of the God, their Savior. Now, this isn't to say that this would be an easy group, right? We, may, we can explain their actions and actually shed a positive light on them, but that doesn't mean that these were easy people to lead. They presented many leadership challenges for David. And we'll, in the coming chapters, we'll read a lot about that. Yet, it was this experience of leading and unifying this really eclectic group of people, people that are, have very little in common except that they're desperate and have a whole lot of different ideas about how to go about getting out of their desperation many of them that don't include following God's laws. It was leading these people and unifying them that prepared David to rule as the king of Israel. And it was these people that proved to be the most loyal followers of David throughout his life, forming the core of his kingdom. God used David's suffering and despair to mold him. To mold him into a king who had experienced just how cruel and unjust the world is. He knew how worthless material wealth, because he was a wealthy man after killing Goliath, but he knew now and experience just how worthless wealth, how worthless worldly success and the praise of the people and the crowds and the mobs really were. And how quickly things could turn. And he recognized because of what he had to endure during this time that he was fully dependent upon God for everything in his life. This part of David's life illustrates what James would write in his book much, much later on in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is saying, embrace the times of suffering. 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So why hasn't God done something about suffering? Why doesn't He do something when we're in the midst of suffering? Well, His answer is that He has. And in those times, He is. With David, what he was doing was he was molding him and shaping his character and his love and his heart so that he would be fully reliant upon God, which the king needed to be. And teaching him how to be a leader of a people that weren't always about following God, which is exactly what he was going to do on a much larger scale later on in life. That is what he was doing at that time. Yet God has done something even far greater than what he was in doing in David's life. Far greater than what he'll be doing in our lives. And as we sit in the midst of a pandemic and we ask how long will we be plagued by disease? As we sit and we ask how long will racism and prejudice and oppression continue? And how long will we keep doing all of these things to ourselves, to fellow human beings? We look to and we hear the voice of God mercifully answering us and pointing to what He has done. That He has set an end to suffering. It will not continue forever. Jesus Himself will come again and all all who repent of our wickedness and we confess our need for Him, we confess that this world and all of its the wealth or prestige or honor or success that we may have in this world means absolutely nothing. Because we need Jesus first and foremost. And because without Him, without Him we will continue to do the things that we are doing today and this past week for the rest of eternity. But if we are faithful and we we repent of our sins, we confess our need for Jesus, we acknowledge Him as our Savior and our Lord, then, then when He comes again, because He will come again, there is an end point to our suffering, then He will restore the heavens and the earth. He will restore our souls such that we will live with Him for eternity where there is no more disease, no more pandemics, no more scares, no more need to be afraid when we walk out the doors for those of us in our communities to be afraid walking down the street. No more violence, pain, or suffering. And until that time, until what he, is, he has done on the cross is completed, He is working in us. God works within His people to shape and to mold us so that we might learn to live after Jesus' example, bringing the light of the gospel to those who suffer in the darkness. And so if God is working, as he says he is, as, as we read of the example of what he did in David's life, as James says he is working in the midst of our suffering, then how do we discern what it is? 
How do we know? How can we see it? How can we, we go after it and maybe even just to help the suffering end a little bit sooner? Well, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to do one of these things. You see this in films a lot. Uh, I don't remember which director does this all the time. But uh, you'll have one story going along and then about six others that come along and eventually they join at the end and you get to see it all how it comes together. And we're going to try that for a second. Let me tell you the story about Mara. Mara lived in her home country. She had a husband and two sons. And then there was a famine. And there was very, very little food to eat. And so her whole family, husband, herself, and her two sons, left their home And they journeyed off to a foreign country. And they settled down there and they got restarted themselves and they they started to build a life again, having gone through the hardship of famine. And as they did, her sons married. And there was a family and there was joy. And then her husband died. And her first son died. And her second son died. Mara was left with her two daughters-in-law. And back in that day, that meant that they were pretty much defenseless and couldn't really support for themselves. And so Mara said, I will go back to my homeland. Daughters, you stay here. You remarry. Don't let me, an old widow, be a burden on you. But one of them came with her anyways. She went back and she settled and eventually life continued and and that daughter-in-law got married. And yet Mara was still a widow. She still didn't have any sons, any children. She didn't have a miraculous birth. Her daughter-in-law and her husband took her in and so she lived with them. And that's how she ended her days. Reading on in David's story, in verse 3, we read verse this. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know that God, what God will do for me. And then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Mara was the name that that widow gave herself. Before that, she was known as Naomi. Her daughter was named Ruth. And this story that I related to you can be found in the book of Ruth, in the book right before 1 Samuel. Ruth was a Moabite. And when David having no place to put his family, knowing that Saul would kill them just as quickly as he would kill himself, needed a place to go, needed a place to keep his family safe, he was able to go back to the place of his great-grandmother, Moab. Where undoubtedly, there were still those who they could trace their lineage back and relatives that he could go then and say, hey, would you be willing to take my family and let them live with you? for the time being until this passes over. 
In the story of Naomi, her suffering didn't ever really bear fruit in her own life. And yet it was because of what she went through, because of the famine and the daughter-in-law later on and of the close bond that she got with Ruth and of the story that went through from there that then led to the birth of David and later to the birth of Jesus that allowed for her great-great-grandson in his greatest time of need to find safety. How do we discern what God's doing in our lives in the midst of suffering? Oftentimes we can't. Because there's going to be many times when our suffering doesn't end in our benefit. Many times God will use what we have to endure in our lives so that someone else may know his provision. Suffering shouldn't exist. We can observe all the reasons we can happen. We can, we can build the timeline and all of the actions that contribute to why this suffering at this particular time and place happened. But it can't be justified. Because sin is not justifiable. And it is because of sin that we endure suffering. And yet, and yet, God still uses it. Even though sin, that which we've done to ourselves, that which we have said to, which is by definition us cutting off ourselves and our relationship from God and saying that we don't need Him anymore. God still uses the pain we inflict upon ourselves and upon the others around us for our good so that we might know him, so that we might be molded to know him and to act as his son did on our behalf. God took sin, the unjustifiable, and he justified us from our sin when he died in our place by his blood giving us life so that we may no longer be dead so that we no longer would have to live literally in the place of death but that we might know life where is God in the times of suffering What is he doing? How do we know what he's doing? How can we discern what he's doing? Well, God is right alongside us. He's gone ahead before us. He's leading us through it. But not only that, God has taken the brunt of our suffering and pain upon himself. Bearing it so that we don't have to. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord,
with our voice, we cry out to you. Hear our prayers. Come again, end the suffering. But in the midst of it, Lord, it is well with our soul that your will would be done, that your plan would be accomplished. Even if it's not for our own benefits, but if it's so that someone else may know you, may come to you, may receive eternal life, then so be it. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In that last verse of Psalm 142, David writes a line and then verse 7 that says, The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And as we get to come to the table today, this is our physical sign and reminder where we get to gather together at the table, surrounded by the righteous, surrounded by the saints, the children, the brothers and sisters of God, those who have come before us, those who are here with us now in this world, and those who will come after us, all join together at this table. And we celebrate. And we remember. And with our voices, we cry out to our Lord.